Welcome to Malden Reads One City One Book, the companion podcast to the community reading program in Malden, Massachusetts. This year's book is Born a Crime by the famous comedian Trevor Noah. I'm your host, Annie Bennett. Let's get into it. Hello, welcome back to Malden Reads One City One Book. I'm your host, Annie Bennett, here today with Terlonzo Amos, uh, our guest for this episode. How are you doing today, Terlonzo? I'm doing good, Annie. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. Um, so, you are the Director of Operations at Urban Media Arts. What does that entail? You're basically a scapegoat for everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, what it is is just basically making sure that the operations of Urban Media Arts happen, uh, whether it's uh, mechanically or, you know, with the equipment, all the stuff, making sure that the equipment is working for both staff and membership, or just contributing to the day-to-day operations right around here, overseeing a lot of stuff. So tell me, have you had any kind of involvement with Malden Reads? I did listen to Born a Crime, mm-hmm. so I am familiar with the book. Again, I listened to it on Audible, so when you listen to it on Audible, you do not have the advantages of just turning it back a page and like really trying like absorbing some stuff. What did you think of the book? I thought it was an excellent book. I thought that he does a very good job storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you read it or if you did the audible, but when you read it, he does different voices for different characters in the book. And I right. actually shouldn't say characters because this is all real life stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, and it just keeps you entertained that way, the way that he can tell a story. Yeah. So you are a lifelong Bolden resident and have worked extensively with the youth in the community, right? I coach in the Mall Neighborhood Basketball League. So, yeah, those are the youths. Right. The youths. Yes. <laughs> and you've uh, also coached uh, softball and baseball? I've coached softball. My niece was on a uh, softball team, a little league softball. Okay. So you're fairly familiar with the youth experience. What age groups did you work with primarily? In the Mall Neighborhood Basketball League, the MNBL, their high school is so that sophomores, juniors, and seniors, so 16 to 18 years old. Right. I did coach the Little League softball, the girls. Mm-hmm. That was from age 9 to 10 to 12, 13 right. in, in that age group. So most of the book uh, takes place with Trevor Noah in that those age groups. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the way that youth and childhood is presented in the book using your experience working so much with kids in different coaching and leadership roles. So... Um, So first, so Trevor Noah begins the memoir with being thrown from um, the car by his mother. And what, why do you think he chose to start out with this anecdote? And what ways does this story illustrate this kind of overarching narrative of his life? I believe he basically started out that way to let him know that he had a very rough childhood with the apartheid and all the racism that's going over there in South Africa. Now there's racism all over the place and there's certainly racism in the United States, Mm -hmm. but I, I think that he just wanted to get that impactful, just like his mother threw him from the car, not knowing what was going on at that time, just getting out and running for their lives and not being able to really appreciate everything afterwards until he got into his young adult years. Right. So in your lifetime, how has Malden become more racially inclusive? And like, how have you seen that progress change or not change? Well, when I grew up in Malden, there was a handful of black families there was like two Puerto Rican families and one Haitian family, and and that was it. And I'm not sure if there was like any Asian families grow, growing up here. But now in the year 2021, Malden is so diverse. You see a whole bunch of different flavors. Right. And I'm told that we're the most diverse 
community in the state that I'm told that we're the second most diverse community in the state. So in any case, I think it's safe that to uh, say that Marlin is within the top two when it comes to diversity in, in our state. Right. And what areas do you think improvements still need to be made? Well, there should always be improvements in, in all walks of life. So I don't know specifically what areas improvements should be made in. Mm-hmm. I do not have any children in the Malden school system. So from what I'm hearing, I'm hearing that there could be more representation of different flavors in the school system. That's what I'm hearing. Again, my children are not in the school system. My children right. are grown. So, Yeah. And so... A notable relationship in Born a Crime is between Trevor and the dog, Foofy. And so I wanted to read a passage from the book and then talk a little bit about um, the relationship between him and his dog and how he kind of maybe sees himself in the dog a little bit. Um, So to refresh our memories. So on page 97, uh, Foofy was beautiful, clean lines, happy face. She looked like a perfect bull terrier, only skinnier because of the Maltese mixed in. Foofy was dumb as shit. At least we always thought she was dumb as shit. Whenever we called them, Panther would run, would come right away, but Foofy wouldn't do anything. Panther would run back and get Foofy, and then they'd both come. It turned out that Foofy was deaf. <laughs> Years later, Foofy died when a burglar was trying to break into our house. He pushed the gate over, and it fell on her back and broke her spine. We took her to the vet, and she had to be put down. After examining her, the vet came over and gave us the news. It must have been strange for your family living with a dog that was deaf. What? You didn't know your dog was deaf? No, we thought it was stupid. That's when we realized that their whole lives, the, dog, the one dog had been telling the other dog what to do somehow. The smart, hearing one was helping the dumb, deaf one. Foofy was the love of my life, beautiful but stupid. I raised her, I potty trained her, she slept in my bed. A dog is a great thing for a kid to have. It's like a bicycle, but with emotions. And then it goes on later, on page 100. Foofy was my first heartbreak, and this is after uh, they get her back from the other family. No one has ever betrayed me more than Foofy. It was a valuable lesson to me. The hard thing was understanding that Foofy wasn't cheating on me with another boy. She was merely living her life to the fullest. Until I knew that she wasn't going out on her own during the day, her other relationship hadn't affected me at all. Foofy had no malicious intent. I believed that Foofy was my dog, but of course that wasn't true. Foofy was a dog. I was a boy. We got along well. She happened to live in my house. That experience shaped what I felt about relationships for the rest of my life. You do not own the thing that you love. I was lucky to learn that lesson at such a young age. I have so many friends who still, as adults, wrestle with feelings of betrayal. They'll come to me angry and crying and talking about how they've been cheated on and lied to, and I feel for them. I understand what they're going through. I sit with them and buy them a drink, and I say, friend, let me tell you the story of Foofy. So, clearly this dog had a pretty big impact on uh, Trevor's life. What are your thoughts on those passages? You know, Trevor hit it right on. That was Trevor's truth about Foofy, and that was Trevor's, Trevor's truth about relationships and what you perceive to be being portrayed in a relationship and all stuff. So, yeah, so that was just his truth. I mean, to have such a love for that dog and not even realize that that dog was deaf this whole time, <laughs> I think that was kind of comical. I was chuckling when I was streaming that <laughs> on audible.com. Yeah, so. <laughs> right. And how does his lesson about relationships kind of come back in when later in the book when we start talking about his like first crushes and beginnings of his love life he didn't have he was he wasn't he wasn't the luckiest in love no you know (laughs) you had that one girl that he was interested in she didn't think that he she she was interested in him and it turned out that he finds out afterwards 
when she moves to America that she has that she also has a crush on him as well. Right. So yeah, so there's like things like that, and there are other you know points in the book where he was like interested in somebody. Oh, there was that point. Actually, I'm just thinking about this now. It could be kind of like parallel to Foofy, although I'm not comparing a female to a canine. I would never do that. Right. <laughs> but it was that part in the book, and I don't remember the character's name. That he took the character to the dance and all that, right? It was a it was a fix up from his good friend, right? But she refused to get out of the car and all that. And then he didn't find out till later on that she didn't understand the language. She didn't speak the language. Yeah. So that's I don't want to say it's parallel between her and Foofy, but you had you had a canine who was deaf and couldn't hear, and you had a human being who could hear but didn't speak the language. Right. So. Yeah, and it kind of goes yeah. on with this overall idea of language in the book, where he uses language as like a way to cross social barriers. As Such a, a brilliant person. guy. How many languages did he speak? Like six of them I or something six, like that? yeah. Such a brilliant guy. I mean, it's great. And like, he used that Nelson Mandela quote, like if you talk to a man in a language, he understands. You know, and I don't remember the ending, but it goes on to be like, you, you gained a certain respect for them. And it definitely helped him navigate through South Africa, especially being mixed race and being poor and dealing with all these different social barriers. Um, and then... With also with her his relationship with his father, his ability to kind of act like a chameleon and blend in mm -hmm. was really important. And so uh, his mother, you know, says that she has to have uh, that he has to have a relationship with his father. Why? Why do you think she was so insistent on that? Because she she did a very good job raising him and wanting him to be aware of his surroundings, aware of the world, aware of the challenges that he was going to have being a black man. She knew for a fact that. It was like was going to be rough, but she chose she chose to have Trevor, and she chose to have Trevor with this white man, and knowing that it was against the law, you know that you know there was a crime and all that. But to maintain that relationship with the father, just to know the father side of the family, just mm -hmm. you know that Trevor is Trevor is not one hundred percent black. Right. Trevor is biracial. Yeah, it's interesting because identity seems to be so important to her, but then when we talk about the names. It says that, you know, everyone is usually given a name that represents something and he is intentionally given a name that does not mean anything so that he can have this blank future, blank slate ahead of him, um, which would not. It's interesting to see the, the way that she thinks about identity and kind of uses it and doesn't use it throughout the book. Um, and so she says that, you know, you need to have a relationship with your father, quote, because he's a piece of you. And if you don't find him, you won't find yourself. So what? So in the moment when uh, Robert, the dad, shows Trevor the scrapbook with all of his accomplishments, and then he, you know, uh, Trevor talks about that quote where he's like, "Being chosen is the greatest gift you can give to another human being." How was that him being chosen? What? Uh, what? Uh, why was that moment with the scrapbook so significant to him? Trevor, I'm thinking Trevor's father really wanted to be a part of Trevor's life, right? Mm -hmm. But based on the laws in South Africa, right, that, that was just, that just wasn't, it just was not socially possible. And then Trevor's mother marries and the husband didn't want have any, didn't want the father to have anything to do with the family and all this stuff because how it's going to look like amongst his people and all that. So, yeah, so, so, so Trevor was chosen. He was, his, his mother chose to have him, his mother chose to commit a crime right. by having him. Mother choose to raise him with the awareness and give him the mental tools to survive in this world. Right. And even though his father was not a part of his life growing up, based on conditions that I had outlined earlier, 
the father still kept up with him. So the father chose to follow Trevor and just to be somewhat involved in his life, even though it was on the outer perimeter looking in. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, he made that conscious decision to remain part of his life despite the difficulties and the legal repercussions, which is definitely a great feeling. Um, and then how do we see the parenting styles change between Trevor versus his younger brother? And how is that kind of representative of the way that his mother is changing and, you know, this new man comes into her life? And, like, what? how, why do, we, how do we see those two differences, especially with race as well? Trevor's mother was Trevor's mother and father, period. Mm-hmm. Trevor's stepfather, or I should say Trevor's, excuse me, Trevor's mother's wife. I I, I forget the characters' names and all this stuff. He Abel, made, I think, was the stepfather. Abel, yeah. Name, yeah. Abel made it very clear that he is not Trevor's father. Yeah. And he knows that Trevor's here and all this stuff. He'll interact with Trevor accordingly, mm-hmm. but there's not going to be any type of real love for Trevor there. Now, in terms of the other children being raised, well, their father is in the house. And again, right. this is a culture where it's a male dominated household Mm -hmm. that's it period end of story so she had to acquiesce to him for the sake of the marriage right but she was financially savvy so she wasn't acquiescing when it came to the finances yeah as the reader or listener will 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 find out in the book Mm -hmm. so yeah but 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 that's the main difference it's just you know trevor's Trevor's had two parents and one growing up, right. whereas his brothers, both parents were there. That's true. And he also talks about how since he's mixed race, he was treated very differently than um, his younger brother, who was not. Right. Um, but his younger brother was treated as a king because in that culture, the firstborn son, right. was, so he was treated, so his brother got away with stuff that Trevor couldn't even dream about getting away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so when he was a teenager, Noah committed some very nonviolent, you know, petty crimes with pirating CDs and um, things like that. And then he has this turning point when he's going to sell this digital camera and he looks at it, he sees all the photos of this family. Why, what, why was this so impactful for him? And what does this epiphany say about not only Trevor, but crime and society in general? It just made it real. Before Trevor was just trying to get his side hustle on, right. it was just all about the dough. It was nothing that was any type of criminal intent. He had no malicious feelings against anybody. It was just trying to come up with dough. And he was mm-hmm. a very young man and all that. So, But yeah, but when he looked at the pictures of the of the photographs, because he had a chance to sell the camera and all that stuff, right. it, just, it just made it real. It's like, oh, this is somebody's memories and all of that's tied up in here and what is and 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 what is trevor going to get from selling this stuff aside from the monetary gains from that so it just made it real for him because trevor trevor deep down is a very very good person to his soul his his mama raised him right and he (laughs) and he maintained that rightness throughout his entire life you know any type of violence is not boys being boys it's not whatever it's like it is a crime exactly you are a bad person you did something bad and you need to be punished accordingly right period yeah no absolutely um and one of the things that we also get into is like this idea of is does committing a crime make someone a bad person? Like, I think that rape and pirating CDs are very different, you know? Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, wh- how do we refer to crime in our society, and how does that kind of show our racial bias and also our very black and white thinking about what a criminal is, 
you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and so with all these different issues that we've talked about with Trevor, things that he's gone through as a child, how do you see similar uh, conflicts arising in the kids that you mentor and that you coach throughout these things, these uh, sports and programs that you're involved in? Well, I just don't know if there's any similarity because Trevor just grew up in a very, very different society. I mean, not being able to show affection to his mother out in public because right. of the crime and all that. So there is just like no comparison from any of the kids that I have mentored or coached over the years. There's no comparison to my life. There's no comparison to anybody that I know. So I would, so that'll be my answer. It's just like no comparison. That's interesting because I feel like one of the reasons that the book has become so laudated is because people think it's such a relatable story, but you're right. I mean, it is completely different society and we do see some similarities, but to try to compare like what this mixed race kid is going through in the midst of apartheid is very different than what these uh, you know kids are going through in Malden. Like, right. Right. I mean, I've grown up with biracial friends, and there was never any any of that. Right. My children are biracial, mm-hmm. and they didn't go through that. Yeah. So it's just something that is just like, just so unrelatable. Right. Yeah. In terms of his more like uh, teenage struggles, such as like with the stuff with him having a crush and like having to deal with his first betrayal with this dog. Have you seen any of those themes kind of resonating within the, the kids that you've worked with? Oh, crush. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because, um, you know, girls will break a boy's heart in a minute, just like that. <laughs> but to be consistent and fair, boys will break the girl's hearts just like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I have been around many of, of my players that have had heartbreaks manners of the heart is a serious stuff yeah. and i'm just going to stop right there because they told me this stuff in confidence and he's even going back years and i still have kept that confidence so wow. man- manners of the heart it's just no joke i know I, i've been on both sides of it in high school as well <laughs> um are are the messages in this book important for youth to access what parts of the book do you really wish that like the kids in your life your children and your who are now grown but the kids you mentor, like, what do you really wish you could be like, list, like, look at this, understand this concept? I've always said about my kids that they didn't know how good they've had it because they've always had it good. Yeah. They certainly had it better than what I had it. I didn't have it anything near as bad as Trevor. <laughs> but as a parent, you want to have your kids better than what you've had. Right. So the stuff that he appreciated, it's just like show like an appreciation. I mean, he appreciated the fact of being able to eat McDonald's. He was so appreciative of that. Well, they were all appreciative of that when McDonald's came in. <laughs> and then KFC, I mean, you know, you really live in high in the hog, you get KFC. Right. So just those things that we take for granted over here. I mean, because McDonald's, that's just fast food. And, and you, you consume too much of that, that stuff will kill you. <laughs> but, the, but just to be appreciative of that and what little that he has had. I mean, there's a lot of times where he has gone to bed hungry or near hungry. Right. And again, that's, I mean, poverty is real, racism is real, and it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in, mm-hmm. it's just more realer in some parts than others. Right. How do you see the power of things like storytelling, media, communications? What potential does that have as a tool for social change? You know, it's just getting your thought out there, getting the word out there, telling your story, telling your truth, whatever your story or whatever your truth is, mm-hmm. just being able to communicate. And I said at the beginning of this podcast, that he is such a very damn good storyteller. Yeah. And it was like I could picture everything going on. So I've never been to South Africa. 
And I don't know all those languages and I don't know the culture, but I was able to picture everything that was going on based on how he told the story. So, yeah, so being able to tell that story, whatever your story is. Right. And so you listened to the book. Do you think that his, what, you talked a little bit about the voices he does for the different people in the book, but what else do you think that his narration really added to your experience from listening to it? Just, he draws you in so you can, so you can like feel for him. He, he makes it as if that you're living this stuff through his eyes. So right. just being able to really just, such an accurate storyteller just a like i can't even i can't even you know go on more about his skills of st- of telling that story it's just yeah. fantastic and for the whole book you know there's a lot of different chapters scenes anecdotes what's one part that has really stuck out to you something that you've thought about a long time after actually listening to the book history to tell an accurate history you know he had that friend hitler Mm-hmm. and they're out there partying, and Hitler was a dancer, a very good dancer, and they keep on going, go Hitler, go Hitler, go, <laughs> and I think any, I think that anybody, once they're growing up, that they've gone out dancing and all that, we have all seen that scenario where someone is really dancing, right. and somebody say, go, 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 not knowing the history of Hitler, yeah, and not understanding what was going on when they had that gig, and it was uh, in that um, Jewish setting. Yeah. And they're yelling Hitler. And he's thinking that they got disrespected because they were black. Right. But it had nothing to do with that. And again, it goes to the education or lack of education, not knowing who Hitler was in history. Right. So I correlate that to, or I think about that now, what's going on in this country. This country has, this country was built on racism. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, complete true story of this country has not been told on a wide scale thing or i should say it's not being taught in schools there's information out there there's sources out there you talk about the internet all this information at our fingertips now and we could seek the truth but wouldn't it be a hashtag beautiful thing (laughs) if the truth was taught in school right well i always remember in high school someone once said like the winners are the ones who get to write history Um, And since we're all the heroes in our own stories, of course, the people who have the biggest weapons are going to be the ones winning and then they're going to write the books and they're going to make themselves the heroes. Um, And with your work within, um, not within the Malden School District, but within the the sports and working with these youth, how do you see, and even just in this country as a whole, as a person, how do you see the Eurocentricism within our curriculum, within high schools and middle schools and even elementary schools? You know, it, it, it sticks out as a sore thumb. I mean, I grew up in the Marvel school system and all that, so this is, like, normal to me. Like, like this is what I know. Right. Right? But you go to other parts of the country, and I'm originally from Albany, Georgia. I was born in Albany, Georgia. Mm-hmm. I went to Georgia for my summers, and I'm in a majority black environment down there. So just being able to see the differences of my childhood from my summers in Georgia to being here in Malden so I can like see the differences. But again, you're a kid, you're just navigating it. It's just, it is what it is. But being able to have different conversations with people or colleagues or whomever around the country and finding out like how they grew up, what was norm for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so. Yeah. Had, I've had a very good in Malden. Yes. I was fortunate. It's a nice town. Yeah. Um, and you, you, we've talked about how like un- 
incomparable uh, the apartheid and racism in America is. But are there any similarities that do stick out to you between apartheid and Jim Crow or the new Jim Crow? Oppression. Yeah, I mean. Oppression. It's just like just um, trying to break a person down mm-hmm. because of his skin color. Having that person feel as though that, that person is less than. That person is not worthy. That right. person is not trustworthy. That person's never given the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Just always thinking something negative about that person. It's just the, the negativity and stuff. It's just being a victim and not having even doing anything. I mean, he named the book appropriately, Born a Crime. Right. If you have black or brown skin, if you have darker skin, automatically the worst is thought about you. Right. You have to go out of your way to prove yourself. And how do you prove innocence? You don't prove innocence because you're innocent. You prove guilt. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh, what impact do you think those messages have on our young people? Well, I'm hoping that the young people are listening. I'm hoping they are. You know, you have, um, you have young people out here that are throwing out the N-word ending in an A. When the N-word ends in an A, it's supposed to be a term of endearment. So you have like these young people using this term with the soft A. Mm -hmm. And these are young people. It it doesn't matter what, you know, these are black young people, white young people, Asian young people, Latin young people, just throwing that out. It's just like, you know, it's just, you just hope that they listen. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had conversations with, um, with high schoolers in the Molyneux Basketball League, a bunch of bunch of brothers, and I mean brothers, I mean a bunch of dark skinned fellows. Not that, not that, not that they're biological brothers. Right, so I, I call, got, I got that. I call a bunch of young brothers. <laughs> yeah. Also, make sure that the that the listeners out there understand, you know, can follow the story as well. Yeah. And I've <laughs> talked to them plenty of times, different different classes of, like, so I should say, different years. Mm-hmm. About hey, why are you saying that word out loud? And just having like real conversation about that, just to give them my perspective on why you should try not to say that word out loud and just use it loosely how you use it and all that stuff. So they do give me the respect to listen to me uh-huh. and we can have a conversation about it. Right? Have I reached them? I don't know. But the most and the best scenario that could ever happen uh-huh. is to get their attention so they can listen in the first place because there have been those that did not want to listen. Right. Do you think it is possible to reclaim any of these words? I don't think so. I think the word has to be eradicated. I think that there has to be some type of alien forces that's come down to to our planet <laughs> and just uh, hypnotize us and just eradicate the word. It's just not going to go anywhere. It's just not going to go anywhere. You know, there is a difference between the soft A and the hard E-R, yeah. but it's not going anywhere. Unfortunately, yeah. it's not going anywhere. No. I um, Yeah, I mean, I know that, like, obviously I, I don't say it because <laughs> um, I'm very white, but I, I'm not... I haven't heard the the perspective that, you know, just no one should say it, period, which is interesting. I know that, like, me being part of the, the LGBTQ community, there's been a lot of those words that people are trying to reclaim, like, especially queer mm-hmm. is the most recent one. Um, and it's hard because, you know, my, my grandpa was like, what do I call you? And I was like, queer is fine. He's like, I don't, I don't want to say that. Like, right. I, it's just, it, it's hard because on the one hand, you know, you want to, like, give the power back to the oppressed. But on the other hand, like, by keeping these words in circulation, you're still kind of uplifting these like the roots behind it which are rooted in like racism homophobia prejudice etc 
I cannot use that word either because to me that word is derogatory. Interesting. It's, it's just derogatory, and I just cannot use it. I, I know my fair share of people in the LBTQ community, mm-hmm. and I would never refer to them as that or anything like that. That's it's interesting. Just, yeah, because to me that's just you know derogatory. It's yeah, just I mean like, the last thing that I want to do is try to compare like the the experience of being a person of color in this country to being gay because it's just it's completely different. Um, but I do think it's interesting to kind of like talk about the way that these different terms have kind of come back or not come back and the different perspectives that go into that reclaiming. Right. Now you said it's completely different and it's completely different. Now I did not know that you were in that community. Mm -hmm. So thanks for sharing. Of course. But when someone looks at you, they don't know that you're in that community unless you cheer. Exactly. When someone looks at me, they know I'm a black man. Yeah. Bing. Exactly. I think that like is the main difference. Like I have the, especially because I'm not like uh, super butch or anything. I have the opportunity to kind of uh, closet myself. The default for people is straight, which is a problem within itself. But it also does provide a certain like safety for mm-hmm. people who are queer or LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. It's given a, it's given a benefit of the doubt. Yes, given, and you know which is what I came across earlier, like the benefit of doubt. Like you know you, you know you hear about white privilege and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And up until last weekend, I'm like you know. It shouldn't be called white privilege. It should be the benefit of the doubt because when you say white privilege to the person who is white privilege, the first thing they say is no one gave me anything. I worked hard for what I've done, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, you have worked hard for what you have done, right? But then up until, like, this past weekend, it's like, okay, I could see why someone would say white privilege about, and there's, like, some examples that I really don't want to get into. Right. I'm like, okay, well, I could see about, like, the white privilege and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, I I could see why folks would say that. But I still think it should be like the benefit of the doubt. So if someone looks at you, they give you the, you know, if they if they perceive you as a straight woman, they're right. giving you the benefit of the doubt. Right? Yeah. They're giving the benefit of the doubt. You know, when they are looking at me, are they perceiving me as like a good guy? Are they giving me the benefit of the doubt? And I think more often, well, I don't want to say more often than not, but I know that there's, just to be kind, we'll say 50-50. 50-50% of the people that I've, met my lifetime has given me the benefit of the doubt that I'm a good guy and the other 50% have not. Well, so we'll just call it that way. Yeah. Just to be fair. Yeah. And that's uh, super uh, stressful and uh, puts this huge burden. I mean, we've talked a little bit about like the black tax in the book and I feel like there's this huge emotional labor that minorities in America have to deal with. Um, But yeah, it's definitely a, a complex topic and I think you're right with white privilege people's instinct is to be like well american dream like i pulled myself up by my bootstraps and i did all the work and it's like it's not that anything was given to you it's that nothing was taken away right right. yeah it's about equity and not equality um and people think that uh, people are so used to privilege i've heard this quote before people are so used to privilege that equality feels like oppression Mm -hmm. which is um definitely an important perspective so Okay, we are out of time. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about the book, about any of the stuff we talked about today? I thought it was an excellent book. I certainly would recommend this book about what we're talking about in terms of um, racial equality and all that. Uh, I do not work for the network, but I would uh, on Netflix, I would recommend Amend. Amend is a six-part miniseries and it's all about the 14th amendment and i would certainly recommend that all of white america should watch episode two should watch episode two now my favorite episodes episode two episode four which is um um the era women's suffrage right. 
Right. And then the next episode, I believe it's episode five, it gets into the uh, LBGQ, LBGTQ community. Yeah. So, so those are the ones that really resonated with me. Interesting. Yeah. Is that amend A-M-E-N-D? Exactly. All right. On Netflix. I will check it out. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for Terlonzo Amos for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your time. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Annie Bennett. This has been Malden Reads, One City, One Book. Have a good one. For 11 years, Malden Reads has been exploring the answer to the question, what if all of Malden read the same book? You can check them out at maldenreads.org. That's M-A-L-D-E-N-R-E-A-D-S.org and follow them on social media. And while you're there, check out the personal greeting to Malden from Trevor Noah on the set of The Daily Show.